0: Uh, shall we dive in?
1: Yeah Yes
0: <coughs> <laughs> One last time in
1: 2022
0: <laughs> <laughs> la, 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 la. <laughs> This is Let Me Sum Up Your irregular deep dive into films about climate and energy I'm Luke Menzel, recording today on Wurundjeri Land, and for this bumper holiday special I'm joined as always by my two co-hosts, Global Vice President for Mistletoe and Eggnog at the Let Me Sum Up podcast, Frankie Muscovich. Hello Frankie.
1: Good evening Luke, you mixed it up there a bit, because I was going to say, I'm just exhausted from all the extortion over the course of this year, <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm very happy to report that I'm also suffering the after effects of eggnog. Uh, consumed under the mistletoe.
0: Well, Frankie, I know that you're a woman of multitudes and I feel like we've put you in a little bit of a box with your (laughs) extortion activities and I think we need to break you out occasionally, right?
1: I mean, if you want, I'm pretty happy with my little (laughs) extortion box. That's okay. Let's go with it.
0: All right. We'll let you out of the box for this one episode (laughs) and then back in the box, Okay, (laughs) That's the true spirit of Christmas. (laughs) And a man whose holidays are haunted by the ghost of submission's future. tenant, Reed. Tenant.
2: Well, you know, it's, it's like when somebody gives you a gift voucher for Christmas and you know that sometime later you're going to go and cash that in and and do something new and exciting with it. And that's what the submissions that await us in January. Most of them, in fact, due on February the 7th, yeah. a day that will live in infamy. Uh, that's what's waiting us
0: all. What is it about February the 7th? I have this strong sense of being in university and all of my essays being due on the same day, and it's like, can't these people get together and compare notes? It's
2: the first day uh, after a bunch of people in Canberra get back from Bateman's Bay that they feel (laughs) is a decent (laughs) interval after Christmas that they can... Decently ask people to put something in on Except they've all done it at once So it is collectively <laughs> Indecent This is a collective action problem A common pool resource <laughs> problem This is the tragedy of the commons at
0: work. <laughs> Thanks Canberra Thank you, thank you Canberra I know you're all working very hard so I won't go too hard On the whole submission Traffic jam thing But uh, yes
1: Dickie, okay, Reed did it for us, it's fine <laughs> I regret nothing.
0: So, as promised on this week's show, we are skipping the report and discussing disaster flick come climate allegory, don't look up. Uh, but first, we have summed up a bunch of reports since we launched this podcast back in May. There has been the odd report that we have not been super impressed by, um, but also a number of genuinely excellent ones that we really enjoyed. But... Uh, Lieutenant Frankie, uh, which report was best? Which is the must-read for summer rupperers with some time on their hands over the festive season. How could we... How can we possibly resolve this question?
1: Well, I reckon we each pick one that we love and fight it out for the title.
0: Are you proposing an annual award? Uh, Perhaps the first annual Let Me Sum Up Award for Best Climate and Energy Report?
1: Uh, I, I could be. <laughs> but we didn't come up with the snappy title for that yet. What? Yes, we
2: did. The Papies. papies. You can't do better than the Papies. (laughs) Presented by the Academy of Research, Paper, Arts and Sciences.
1: Oh, I'm undercutting oligarch Tennant Reid and suggesting that we ask listeners to suggest a name for it.
2: It's got to be better than the Papies, and that's a high bar.
1: But is it the papies if there's just one papie that gets like, handed out? It's like,
0: <laughs> the, papie.
1: <laughs> the papie. Well, no, it's but... the
0: papie this year and then in future years and henceforth it can be the papies. Yes, yes, yes.
1: <laughs> okay, but don't you have to be <laughs> handing out more than one award?
0: Well, look,
2: we can come up with more awards, but this, there's <laughs> only so much time we can devote to the segment. So maybe with an opportunity a pause for Luke to subsequently insert a fanfare i suggest the uh, the one from rocky uh, <laughs> we should get into it cranky what's your nomination <laughs>
1: Well, I'm not saying it's up for a baby. That's so that sounds silly. <laughs> we need to come up with a better name. All right, I thought the uh, the report from Infrastructure Victoria, uh, feeding into uh, the gas substitution roadmap. I even forget the proper title of the report. I think it was Gas Infrastructure in a Net Zero Economy or yep. something like that. It was really comprehensive, and it took a like I think a really serious look at a whole range of issues that need to be worked through uh in a state that's more reliant on fossil gas uh for heating and industry than than any any other of the major states, so I think just sort of on reflection. It was a really – like that plus the gas substitution roadmap itself, they were really brave pieces of work to do at Mm. um, Commission at the time that they did. Um, When you think about how far the the conversation around the future of gas has sort of moved over the past 18 months – like we were nowhere near having uh you know very open conversations about electrification and moving away from fossil gas so quickly Uh, 18 months ago when this report was commissioned i think um, the government had the really good sense to see that debate coming and i think commissioned some really serious pieces of work that looked at the future of that infrastructure and what possible uses it could be put to, whether that uh, that envisages a role for maintaining um, elements of the network uh, for other forms of gas, be it green hydrogen or biogas or, you know, what um, the potential future looks like in terms of decommissioning some of that, that network. And I thought it took a really... Good sort of sensible view of um, policy recommendations that I think fed into the the roadmap itself. So I just thought it was a great, it was a cracking report, um, a really good read. Mm. I remember we had a the three of us had a really good chat about it.
0: This was definitely in my top three, mm. and um, uh, the the title of this episode um, was. Uh, a very December 2021
1: guest report. <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> which sort of speaks to it being of its moment. And it was, it's kind of, I think we'll look back on it as being kind of in this liminal space between like how this debate was yeah. kind of pre-2022 and, and, and what it's going to look like post-2022 in a post-Ukraine world. Um, the, the abiding memory I have of that conversation is that they were sort of setting 2030 as this kind of junction point. For decisions about the future of gas infrastructure in Victoria, and obviously, you know, um, both the you know the mega trend of you know eye watering global gas prices, but also, um, you know, since then uh, uh, we've also seen the Victorian government commit to a seventy five to eighty percent emissions reduction target by twenty thirty five. Big target. Um, They've massively changed uh, the, the parameters. Um, for for that decision uh, and necessarily I think we're going to see a debate over the next several years, not the next mm. eight years as, as to what the future of that infrastructure is. But also just so clear-eyed about some, what some of the options are um, uh, in terms of how, you know, different parts of the state, different needs of different types of energy users might be serviced in the future. I thought, I thought it was a good one. Yeah, I'd agree with
2: that. Uh, it, it was a strong report and, uh, Frankie, as you said, in, in commissioning it, uh, you know, a, a far-sighted step. Even though, when it came time in mid 2022 to to make some decisions and and do the initial substitution roadmap, the government, the Victorian government, we're talking about here, clearly was a bit cautious. But they had boxed themselves in. They like they had deliberately boxed themselves in by starting this process commissioning. The Infrastructure Victoria report and the subsequent work, knowing I think that it was going to be a bit difficult and a bit sensitive for them along the way. Mm. Uh, so uh, I, I think it's a it's a rare instance of uh, a a report commissioned by a government that is genuinely trying to inform decisions, not to just defer them. Or to validate decisions they already know they want to take.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, so, good one. Uh, Tennant, what report are you going to nominate for the 2022 award? My nomination for
2: the inaugural <laughs> 2022 Papies is. Papy. I'm, Not I'm making that happen. I'm making <laughs> it happen. A thing. Uh Is the safeguard mechanism design paper. Oh. So. Now, this might be a surprising suggestion because this is not a research report. This is not a report or a, or a paper that uh, pioneers any in new intellectual directions broadly. Uh, but my pitch for this one is that it is likely to have more direct impact on more emissions than any of the other papers that we assessed this mm, year. Mm, it's going
0: to... Mm, I'm not sure if I agree
2: with that. Dire- mm. Oh, controversy. <laughs> it's going to uh, directly guide uh, the reduction of tens of megatons of emissions in Australia uh, over the next decade and more. Um, it has set up... An expectation for a level of emissions reduction ambition that, while not as uh, going as far as some would want, uh, goes quite a way, and has apparently, based on the government expectation embodied in the 2022 emissions projections that we talked about uh, last episode, that that level of ambition seems to have stuck. And I'll say this for it as a as a report, it lays out design decisions and choices that are available with clarity and, thank God, a reasonable degree of brevity. Anybody who had to make their way through the old green papers and white paper for the carbon pollution reduction scheme will appreciate uh, the value of brevity. So I I think it's, it's an important paper. Uh, it hasn't advanced understanding that much, but it is, well, we will see in January, I suppose, uh, when the next phase of this uh, this work comes out. Uh, but it does seem to be advancing policy in a positive direction.
0: That's my pitch. That's a strong pitch. I am similarly optimistic that the... Uh this report's going to, um, you know, drive a a significant step forward in terms of climate policy in Australia and it certainly seems to be a milestone on that step. Um, You uh, remind me of um, the Game of Thrones uh, fans who named their daughters Daenerys. Oh, (laughs) oh, no! I know! Like, you kind of want to see the end of the story. Is the safeguard mechanism going to turn
2: out to be an omnicidal maniac? I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen. It's the people in the Parliament who think you're right, Leonard, you, Luke. But you don't know how the story finishes. <laughs>
1: there's a lot of daddies going around these days.
0: <laughs> I think that's very unlikely. I think that uh, there's, a, there's every chance that um, it, as you say, is a uh, positive contribution to an ongoing process that lands in, good, in a good place. Um, it also reminds me of the delightful episode we recorded with Catherine Murphy. And um, one of the really interesting things about unpacking that consultation paper was you know it's kind of freighted with history right and it's like a little diorama (laughs) which encapsulates so many parts of the uh of the climate debate over the last 10 or 15 years both in what's in there and what's absent um so it's kind of fun from that perspective as well
1: uh, I was also reflecting fondly in our chat with Murphy. I think the last fire in the forest, I think. Mm. Yep. Featured in a, in the title of that episode. Episode seven. That's it. And I think the other thing that's um kind of really hard to not think about when we're um talking about the safeguard mechanism in that paper is what's gonna be happening. Um with the uh, with with accuse and the the, the Chubb review that's going on at the moment, of, you know, of course, I think we want to see the balance of effort by safeguard entities focused on you know investment in reducing emissions, but for a time and for a proportion of activity like there will be a a need to rely on on you know robust and credible carbon credits and you know the future of that scheme that exists already in Australia is you know there's a bit of a question mark um over the integrity of of some of those credits So it will be really interesting to see how that plays out Because one will have quite a significant impact on the other
2: And I think we're going to get them both In the week of the 9th of January Oh goody So good luck to those of us who <laughs> thought that We were going to be on holidays that week oh. No we're
0: not you can hear the ghost of submissions Future <laughs> oohing In the background
1: <laughs> What do you reckon Luke Can you top it
0: yeah, what's
2: what's your papy nominee?
1: No, it's not a thing.
2: <laughs> I think Tennant's
0: making it a thing.
1: No, stop buying into it, Lick. You're giving in. No, <laughs> it's
0: yeah, yeah. nah, nah. growing on me. All right, so um, <laughs> over the course of this sort of founding year of this podcast, the fifteen or so episodes we've done leading up to this one. There's been a big conversation about the shortcomings of integrated assessment models. Um, mm. And for me, the paper um, that kind of sort of um, really moved that beyond a critique to sort of starting to think about what could be next in that journey was the paper we covered on episode 11, uh, Empirically Grounded Technology Forecasts and the Energy Transition. The Learning Rates Paper. That's what I was going to say. Like That's what we call it. For, this, for me, this paper, it deserves... The gong because it did a couple of things really well. It provided an alternative tool for considering the costs of the energy transition, but it also drove home why IMs are such a problem for guiding policy and investment in the transition. Mm. Um, it set out this approach called probabilistic cost forecasting, which predicts how technology costs fall as deployment increases. Um, The authors validated this approach by testing it against historic empirical data for around 50 technologies, and having validated it, it, used it to project forward for a bunch of key technologies, both single technologies and also sort of created some fairly broad brush scenarios, including a scenario which sees the global energy system uh, rapidly transition to zero carbon in a way that's broadly consistent with a 1.5 degree scenario. Now, not taking anything else into account, you know, you know, impacts on lives and, and livelihood of, of uh, you know catastrophic climate change. Just looking at the economics, that paper found that you know the fast transition scenario, the most ambitious scenario they looked at, saves us between five and fifteen trillion, just compared against B. And a lot of that saving is down to just how low costs can get through rapid deployment. And this is something that IEMs, for the most part, have missed. Mm. And in missing it, have overhyped the costs of transition and yeah. uh, likely stymied the very deployment that would drive costs down and left us in a worse place than we might otherwise be if um, if other approaches have been taken. So I think it's important to acknowledge this is early work. Um, the team is currently looking at much more granular scenarios. I think the sophistication of this work will continue to evolve. But while there's a lot to do, I think it's really exciting in terms of the contribution to the global debate around transition costs. And it's interesting, like the reason I quibbled with you about you know, how much direct Emissions reduction, one of these papers could drive. Um, I guess it depends on your definition of direct, because yes, um, yes, there's a you know a very um, point A to point B relationship between the safeguard paper and the um, and the emissions reductions that will be driven within safeguard entities. But if this work and work that builds on it is able to really shift the conversation and the considerations that. Um, public policy makers bring to bear on decisions that they're making at the global level, that could be truly transformative. And that's why it's so exciting and why I think it deserves our inaugural award. It's a strong case. What do you reckon, Frankie? You
1: sort of set it out again really well there, Luke. One of the, like, just like there were so many things that were really compelling and really kind of um, clearly and um, succinctly kind of laid out in this paper. I thought when you said IAMs have missed this in terms of the the rate of improvement and um, dropping cost in technology. I think that's a bit of a kind assessment, really. I think they've sort of seen what's happened and repeatedly like choose to use um, over conservative assumptions around cost floors and deployment figures in a way that's you know clearly not justified when you look at the actual trajectories that some of these technologies are on. And as you say, I think the other really kind of big compelling finding out of it is that the fast scenario is there, there is no you know there's there's not a, a cost um to society it's it's all benefit and that's not even factoring in all the other things like societal cost of carbon which are you know sometimes flawed measures it's just the rate of technology improvement and the cost of that coming down so very compelling and just really exciting to think about the uses that this work could be put to in the next little while so yeah, I think you've got my vote.
2: And look, I I, I made my, my case for the, the safeguard paper, but the learning rates paper is certainly the one that has had the most profound impact on my thinking of the ones that we've covered this year. Uh, and it's been a touchstone. I, I keep thinking about it uh, in relation to stuff that comes up in my day job, in uh, in thinking about... The role of international emissions trading and Article Six and things in the uh, in the COP context, uh, different aspects of the implications of this paper have, have played out for me. So, yeah, I think it's a hell of a paper. I, I look forward to uh, to critiques of it and uh, refinement of it by the authors and and different efforts at the at the same challenges, but. I, I am happy to vote for the 2022 <laughs> Papies Awards for the Oxford Learning Rates paper. It's not
1: called the Papies, <laughs> but it can have the award. <laughs> I'm not giving in yet.
2: The weight of history,
1: uh, Frankie, the weight of
0: history is going to prevail in the end.
1: I'm fighting it. I'm still fighting it.
0: All right, so it is my great pleasure to announce that the first... Annual Papy, the Let Me Sum Up Award for Best Climate and Energy Report goes to empirically grounded (laughs) technology forecasts and the energy transition. Congratulations to Rupert Way, Matthew C. Ives, Penny Mealy, and J. Doyne Farmer for the win. Uh, I can confirm a trophy is not in the mail uh, you, What uh, about a picture of a train <laughs> with uh, a uh, digitally altered uh,
2: uh, correct uh, engraving added onto it in a very subtle fashion
0: I, I think that uh, that is within our budget yes
1: <laughs>
0: potentially conveyed via social media
1: <laughs> Look out for the tweet tomorrow guys <laughs>
0: All right I think that's a that 's a good outcome, and I think we 'll call uh, the other two papers runners up in the, the inaugural papers and uh, yes, uh, congratulations to all involved they were all they were all generally fantastic papers and and um I think we should take this moment to pay tribute to all the people out there slaving away um, on on uh, on various research reports. Uh, consultation papers, um, it is often thankless work and um, I think that uh, one of the premises of this podcast is it's really important work and the more that we can sort of engage uh, critically with with that work, um, we bring it to light and, and use it as a launching pad for thinking through how we work our way through the transition, the better, hey? Uh,
2: we salute them, <laughs> the authors, <laughs> co-authors, uh, the the spreadsheet constructors. Uh, and uh, nerdy analysts and wonks who have done so much to advance the cause of better understanding of and debate of and decision making on energy and climate this year. Here, here. All right. Shall we talk about a movie? Sure. <laughs> We're filled with enthusiasm about this one, aren't we?
1: Really?
0: <laughs> Sorry.
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Sure. Late 2021 saw the release of Don't Look Up, a satire that sets out to skewer the role of politicians, the media, corporations and the general public in preventing ambitious action on climate change directed by Adam McKay and starring everyone from Leonardo DiCaprio to Jennifer Lawrence to Meryl Streep. It is an allegory that explores its themes by imagining a planet-destroying comet is hurtling towards Earth and nobody can get their act together to do anything about it. Now, at this point, it is incumbent upon me to warn you that there are spoils ahead. So if you don't want to be spoiled on this year-old movie, I suggest you pause this podcast, go find it on Netflix, and come back later. But with that important caveat, out of the way, tenant. what did you make of this movie? So this is a few things as a movie. It's a
2: comedy. It's a take that to several, like, specific great big thing uh, risks hitting the earth and uh, our plucky heroes must do something about it movies like Armageddon. Mm? and a deep impact, Uh, and it's also a climate allegory. Climate change is never explicitly mentioned in the course of the movie, but it's also, like, so clearly an allegory for climate change that even if the creators hadn't been talking in uh, social media and interviews and every other possible context about how, hey, it's really about climate change... (laughs) Uh, that is just an inescapable mm. so well certainly for people like us and you dear listener uh, if you are listening to this podcast you are probably sufficiently uh, suffused with climate stuff that uh, you you can't escape thinking well this is really about climate change mm. but a question that is uh, that that occurs is how good is it <laughs> at being? Each of those things. Now, this was a movie that um, inspired a lot of discourse a year ago. And look, frankly, I would have thought, I did think, I said, I think there's been enough discourse about this movie. We should talk about a different movie. (laughs) And yet we put it on the list. (laughs) We will, out of respect for the people, we put it on the list. And the people said, there has not been enough discourse about this movie. We need to know what Frankie and Luke and heaven help us, yes, even Tennant, think about Don't Look Up. And look, I want to like this movie, but I think that as a comedy, it had the problem of just not being very funny. Comedy is a very like it's a very individual thing, mm. and what works for one person won't work for another. But you know, I find myself being like uh, like Millhouse at Camp Krusty, saying he's still funny, just not ha ha funny. Uh, it it there were a couple of things that I thought I I, I even on the second uh, go I got a, a good chuckle out of. I thought that. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character's reaction to seeing uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Blanchett just start making out in the Situation Room at the White House—that uh, was a
1: great reaction. Uh, I like how I- that's the first bit of like actual content you've touched. On. <laughs> the most important thing that happened.
2: I thought that the third go round of the black bag uh, on the on the head of a major character joke was was very good. <clears throat> uh, I thought some other stuff like Jennifer Lawrence's inability to let go of the question of why the general charged her for free snacks in the White House. That was like it was meant to be. A building funny joke And it didn't <clears throat> um, Yeah So uh, as Comedy Not so much Some other aspects of it I thought did work quite well But the, For a comedy You've got to be funny And To me not so
0: funny I think you've covered off on the on the whether it's a funny comedy element of it. It is not offensive. It is it is actually you know it's okay as a comedy. Um, mm. uh, I sort of put that to one side because that because while it is supposed to be a comedy and that's certainly the um, the background of of this director, the main job that this movie seems to have given itself is to spark uh, interest um, reflection on uh, the climate crisis, and to a degree, because of all the conversation that it generated, job done. Like, there was a lot of conversation yep. around those issues. And so, um, yep. you know, by the uh, metrics that it set for itself, it, it at least went some way towards achieving those metrics. But I want to sort of reflect on, because I think we need to tackle this head on, how good is... A uh, planet destroying meteor um, that we find out s- about six months before it's hit as an allegory for the climate crisis. Because I don't think it's very good.
1: <laughs> like, it's not, right? But I actually I ended up listening to a podcast that Adam McKay, the director, did. Actually, it was on Vault, um, the, the podcast that I think we all listen to, another climate podcast.
2: David Roberts. Dr. Voltz on Twitter, well worth a follow by some chance you're not already.
1: Absolutely. And I was like, you know, it's a pretty like wide ranging um, chat that they had. But um, McKay sort of acknowledged up front, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a perfect um, allegory at all. But I think in choosing that. Like, the decision was made, or I guess sort of wanting to explore the question, like, how immediate does the threat have to be to engage people meaningfully in caring about what's going yes. on? Like, it's it's a very, I think, intentional contrast in that but way. that's what
0: kept taking me out of the film, because mm. I think in that situation, it doesn't matter how batshit the president is – they're probably going to pay attention if there's a if there's a meteor that's going to destroy the planet six months away. And that kept taking me out of the movie. is that I didn't think that the actions of the character or the reactions of the media, so all of these players, sort of made sense if you're thinking about it. Oh, that's, that's like how the media or politicians react to the climate crisis, which is this amorphous, slow-moving, distant threat. But they're reacting to a very immediate and acute and understandable threat with a clear and present danger. And when we have those, and I think, um, you know, the the most uh, relatable analogies would probably be like, you know, the threat of war or a terrorist attack or something that's very immediate that is easily understood that everybody can rally around. Or a pandemic. Well, yeah,
1: or a pandemic.
2: Where I think this gets actually uncomfortably resonant.
1: yeah. I was going to say, that was maybe the other thing I thought about the whole time I was watching this movie. Because it's a, like, also because it's a satire, so, and I think we've sort of discussed whether it really lands the comedy in places. It's really hard to satirise, um, and this is very much a United States of America kind of focused movie. It's almost like the rest of the world. Might not even exist apart from some kind of offhand references. There's an
0: explosion on a Russia airfield, and there's like a text message from the the Chinese president, and that's about it.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> which is very much of a piece with the kinds of movie that this is parodying. Yep. Like the, the America is the center of everything in these sorts of movies. Is this movie uh, parodying that, or just committing the same sin? I don't know, but it it's it's a familiar. <laughs> cinematic issue.
1: And, and you can tell them that, like, yeah, of course they've, they've made that decision uh, on purpose to make it so US-centric, but what's really hard to look at this, like, it's hard to look at it as a satire because some of the elements of, like, the way the, you know, this fictional president, Janie Orleans, um, you know, was dealing with the prospective threat of um, the comet and willing to engage in conspiracy theories and things like that we're not that far off what was happening in the US during the pandemic. Like, it, it gets really hard to do a satire of something that's just very hard to to parody.
0: It might work better as a, as a pandemic satire than a climate satire.
1: I think you could almost interchange the two, like, mm. especially as it related to the, um, the way that, the president was sort of engaged or not um, on the issue and her response to it, I thought, in that sense, like you could imagine watching this movie in the midst of an ongoing pandemic in the US and going, like, no wonder it's so divisive. I think it would have cut very close to home for a lot of people. So,
2: like, the question you asked, Luke, is this a good allegory for climate change? Like, it's, it's a far from perfect allegory for climate change. I'm not sure there is uh, a... Like, allegory, allegories don't tend to be perfect, mm. um, but I think it's it functions better as a... Rethink your great big thing at risk of hitting the Earth movie in light of what we have actually seen of how the real world has reacted to and the the real America has reacted to climate change and to the pandemic. And would any of the the stuff that we expect in our disastrous impact movies with – rapid um, decision-making by the powers that be and jut-jawed heroes doing the right thing and million-to-one shots panning out uh, with, you know, maybe some losses along the way but the the, the, the big uh, mission accomplished, would any of that actually happen? Uh, or, or how how would real decision-makers and real... People and I think people come off almost as badly as the decision makers in this quite misanthropic movie. Um, and on the pandemic, I will I will just raise one aspect of that. That is, oh, so such a terrible thing. Uh, this movie is like the the uh, Meryl Streep president is like the female Donald Trump, more or less the like I think it's almost unarguable the single greatest thing best thing closest to good thing i think I think just genuinely good thing that the Trump administration did was initiate and carry through to completion the operation warp speed vaccine development drive like that has been a very important thing. And Donald Trump is trying to become the Republican nominee for president again, and he can't talk about the single greatest thing that his administration accomplished because his voters hate vaccines. The uh, public discourse in, in his neck of the woods is so poisoned on this subject that he can't uh, he can't talk about it without losing ground to his opponents. Ron DeSantis has the edge on him because of his uh, flirtation with vaccine skepticism in in that regard. So you take that and you look at the reaction of like the the uh, the people at large in the United States in this movie where they like some of them don't believe there's a comet some of them don't believe that it's going to do bad things some of them are more concerned with fighting culture wars than with anything else a lot of people are just distracted and don't know what to think everybody even the scientists are like prioritizing reacting to who broke up with who in the celebrity music superstar couple story over uh, the the horror that they are trying to convey to people and like that looks frighteningly plausible mm, i don't know I, I,
0: I feel like a pandemic is amorphous and it's acute sure but it's also amorphous you know and and, and, and open to um, misinformation in a way that a big rock hurtling towards earth has more has, has more in common with like soldiers on your doorstep or with you know the twin towers coming down, or something like that, it's tangible in a way that some of these other things aren't you, you know you can you can use a bit of magical thinking to wish away the pandemic and pretend it doesn't exist it's hard harder, I think. <laughs> we're arguing about this hypothetical scenario. I just I just feel like that it that that it would um galvanize different sort of response to you know something which is necessarily a lot more amorphous in in, in a
1: global a global pandemic. I think one of the many things I found really triggering in this movie was um so like the point that you just made about um the comet hurtling through space being a very real thing except until people could actually see it in the sky um at a certain point like Mm -hmm. conspiracy theories abounded that this wasn't a real thing that you know like the film was portraying that there must have been a decent chunk of people out there that were either yet too distracted uh not well informed enough didn't, didn't believe what the scientists were saying that uh, maybe it wasn't a thing and then the moment that little pinprick appeared in the sky with a little tail on it the culture war solidified into two two slogans hmm. just look up and don't look up and, uh, and even then the people in the you know sort of pseudo Trump right side of politics used it as a as a wedge against the the, the science, so you know, basically, they
2: want you to look up so they can look down their noses at you.
1: Exactly, one of the more memorable lines from the movie, and I thought that was one of the I think um, points where the satire really landed for me. I thought that that was like triggering because you could feel something like happening in the climate space. I thought that was one of the things that was well done um, in the film. What I found a little bit frustrating through the film was it tried, like it was satirising almost everyone. So in in sort of trying to kind of aim its critique at, you know, so it's not just the decision makers like the politicians, but yeah, the general public, the scientific community uh, in a way, definitely the media as well as kind of, big industry, which is represented by this weird love child of, like, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and I don't know.
2: Mark Rylance playing a very similar character to the... uh Asperger's billionaire. He played in Ready Player One. Uh, yeah. In this one, you're meant to think he's malevolent, whereas in Ready Player One, he was only malevolent if you really thought about it.
1: So it's 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 really aiming its critique at almost everyone in a way, and it, yeah, I think everyone it really, is awful. Well, yeah, but I think it just sort of I think it in a way can weaken the message it's trying to put. Like it's it's trying to be so broad. In, um, in applying its critiques That I feel like It really doesn't land them In, in certain places
0: The animals didn't seem to be uh, Responsible for anything They just kept popping up every every half hour or so <laughs> What just, did they do? Nothing Bunch of useless well, no, animals well, well, Yes, I guess that's true And
1: newborn babies yeah.
2: Babies are stupid, as The Onion informed us so many years ago. It's
0: like, you know, every now and again they'd go, you, you, it, it's almost to, to kind of stop stop the audience falling into, all oh, these humans are terrible, they deserve to die. And no, wait, there's there's animals and, and little little seals and, and babies that are going to die as well. Yes. <laughs> you should keep caring about them.
1: It was very ham-fisted. But again, like, that all just felt really intentional. Even the kind of... Um the kind of really um, fast-paced, jazzy music that would that would sort of pipe up um, between yeah. scenes and things like that, and then often be accompanied with montages as well. So, for all that,
2: despite like it, it, it is a uh, it is an anti everybody movie and and i thought like towards the end I, I especially on the second viewing i i thought you know it's it's really pretty disenchanted as well with the people who are trying to do something because like towards the end when uh the official us plan is this mad uh let's wait till the comet is nearly hitting us and then blow it up just enough that it still hits but in Digestible, mineable chunks to make people a lot of money. Uh, and they're, they're protesting that plan. They've got their don't uh, j- just look up slogan, but they're not really visibly... They don't have themselves a plan to do anything in particular. Uh, the, the vapid uh, music stars uh, are now singing affecting songs about how we, we stuffed it all up and we need to just look up and, and do it right now. Like, none of them is achieving anything. But for all that, at the very end, when Jennifer Lawrence and uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and their family and friends and, and Timothy Chalamet, <laughs> He just got picked up along the way for the ride. <laughs>
0: Yes. And fair enough, really
2: <laughs> They're sitting around the table having their last meal Which they are all aware is their last meal Because it's over, the comet is about to hit And they're saying what they're grateful for And, uh, and Leo says, we really did have everything, mm. didn't we? When you think about it It's quite affecting, I found it's uh, it wasn't that funny as a comedy, but uh, it was, for, you know, at the end, quite affecting. Um, and and I didn't want the the world, <laughs> despite how unpleasant almost everybody
0: in it was. <laughs> proving, proving yourself to be slightly less misanthropic than this movie was. <laughs> I did find that uh, that final scene quite moving, um, having spent some time with these characters, and it it's just it was it was kind of tragic. And despite the fact that I was kind of in the movie and out of the movie, overall I was very conscious that mm. you know this is kind of like a speeded up, um, intensified, distilled um, sort of parable for what we could be working towards in terms of the way we're dealing with climate, with what I do in my day job and the things that I think about regularly. um, It was kind of uncomfortable just spending that time in that space, um, uh, being confronted confronted with that for a couple of hours. We spend
2: a lot of time thinking about solutions Mm. and watching people just comprehensively stuff it up for 90 minutes watching the (laughs) scientists be unable to explain themselves in a way that cuts through
1: (laughs) Did did you guys find it really triggering when oh there's so many um bits like this through the movie i think it was oh it was at the start of um the first presidential briefing yes that leo DiCaprio and um Jennifer Lawrence were giving Meryl Streep and her son, who uh, Jonah Hill, Jonah Hill, who is awful, like you know, in, a, in
2: he's really terrific at being awful in yeah, this movie. Coked a up, little
1: too terrific,
2: fixated <laughs> son and chief of staff. Oh, he's so good.
1: Uh, it it was great, and I think like very kind of thinly veiled parody of maybe Eric Trump or Donald Trump Jr because he's also the president's son and chief of staff at the same time. Uh, Nepotism. But you start seeing Leo DiCaprio set up the, the science of what he's about to report and he starts wading into scientific jargon about the, the calculation methodology that is being used and like you just see Jonah Hill's eyes roll into the back of his head and just go, I've got to stop you there I have no idea what you're talking about that hit a little close to home <laughs> I think you're right, it also is aiming criticism uh, in a way at the people who are working in this space and you know perhaps one of the the more useful things to take out of this if you're working in this space um, is to be constantly thinking about how we can be explaining the work that we do in our day job in a way that's really accessible mm. to people who don't live and breathe this stuff 24-7.
2: I think the movie also making the case that uh, uh, the best way to have your message accepted uh, is to be a bearded white man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it didn't take long for the um, nose-pierced uh, female <laughs> grad student to get run roughshod over to <laughs> it.
2: <laughs> I think Jennifer Lawrence does great work in this movie. Uh, I, I I think like, she was terrific. I thought uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was uh, doing fine work as this... Uh, nerdy, uh, nervous, uh, self-effacing Midwestern academic who who starts transforming beneath the, uh, the the positive reaction that he starts getting from people to uh, the way he says things. Uh, yeah, I I just I just wish I just wish the script had been a little funnier.
0: Mm, I um, I did wonder a little bit about his. Character arc because he, he starts out very earnest and very concerned, and he got get, sort of gets taken in mm. by this you know this harebrained idea that they're just going to you know blow up the comet a little bit and then mine the resulting asteroids, um, uh, and then he kind of becomes the face of the whole enterprise. Yeah. Like he's on advertisements saying, oh, you shouldn't be worried about this. It's all going to be great. You just call, ring this call hotline." Call our helpline. <laughs> yeah. But then well, suddenly... He's corrupted
2: by power. He is. He's tempted and taken in for a while and then he can't abide it any longer. He has
0: this breakdown on TV, um, yeah. decides, you know, this is all a load of hogwash. And then he's just back in the, the other movement again. And it's like everyone's like, yes. oh, that's totally cool. You're back. <laughs> You agree with this again? <laughs> like, now you're the figurehead of the movement once more. I was like, is that how that would play out? I'm not sure. <sighs> they sort of allied that whole journey back to the heart of the uh, the anti comment movement. But anyway.
2: The bit where after his uh, his rant on uh, morning news television, uh, where he's still let onto uh, Sesame Street... <laughs> <laughs> to talk to the children and the children say is the plan gonna work and is it No,
0: everyone's gonna die. That was oh, one that of the funnier bad. pieces. The kids are like oh
1: I don't like this man. I don't very like you much. anymore. <laughs>
0: Character arc, be damned, that was it was worth it <laughs> for, for that 10-second scene.
1: <laughs> one of the other moments that I thought was actually funny, but in a really sad way, was when um I think it sort of after the um the initial mission so we should kind of say that whilst the the president um in the first instance when hearing about the comet that's hurtling towards earth decides that that can't possibly be true or you know doesn't care about it because she's got other very important midterms, are coming. midterms to worry about decides this isn't a priority we'll just sit tight uh and wait and see and then upon uh revisiting the um politics of a unifying uh, cause like tackling a comet re-engages with it First off, launches a strategy which sees some ex-military beefcake guy um, sh- shot into space on a retired uh, shuttle, which then diverts after launch spectacularly back to Earth because they've decided at that point mid-flight that they they shouldn't actually blow up the comet. They should wait until it gets closer so they can um, mine it for trillions of dollars um, worth of resources. Anyway, after that first mission, I think um, Jennifer Lawrence goes back home to her parents and she's kicked mm-hmm. out of wherever everything's uncertain because this you know this mission was aborted but the president's now spruking this new plan that we're gonna that there's gonna be all this economic opportunity from exploiting the resource rich comet that will fall to earth in tiny manageable chunks and uh and she's feeling very dejected and has you know nowhere to go so she goes home and she's on her parents doorstep her parents open the door, but there's a screen door there. She's locked. She goes to open it. She's like, Open the door. And they're like, No politics, but where for the jobs the comet will provide? And she just stands there, kind of stupefied by it. I thought that was great. I mean, horrifying, but great. That was one of the few moments that I thought were genuinely funny in a really horrifying way.
2: I thought uh, that was a, a good moment that I didn't love.
1: Mm. And, like,
2: I, I'm a person who enjoys a, a black comedy. Uh, like, the movie this is most compared to, I think, uh, is, is Doctor Strangelove. And Doctor Strangelove is very funny. Mm. It's it's very quotable. And like, if I was going to point to one key difference, uh, it is that uh, Doctor Strange Love is it's played pretty straight. The absurd, like the absurdity of what is being said and done, uh, is is largely not recognised by the characters, but also the characters. Like they have the role of straight people in a comedy routine. It's Doctor Strange Love doesn't try and make you feel sad or or feel for the stakes. As more spoilers, uh, the um, the the world is annihilated in a completely avoidable nuclear holocaust, uh, and it's it's I, it, to your point, Luke. It is much. More tightly focused on one specific absurdity, uh, which is uh, the notion of security through being on a constant knife edge balance of nuclear annihilation uh, and 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 you know it 's directed by Stanley Cooper. Which, which helps. And written by Terry Southern, which helps. Uh, so that's a, that's a great movie, and this is, uh, this is all right. So the, uh, the, let, the Let Me Sum Up
0: review of uh, Don't Look Up, go watch Doctor Strangelove. Yes. <laughs> all, as always, we close out the show with one more thing in which we all share a piece of culture that we think could captivate your attention this holiday season. Frankie, what have you got?
1: I've got a lovely um, speech that I'd encourage everyone to go have a watch of. Uh, So Noel Pearson, amazing um, author, thought leader, uh, Indigenous man, uh, has given uh, this year's uh, ABC's Boyer Mm. Lectures. Um, And there's a really, yeah, great, great speech that he gave um, that you can go watch and I think it sets out a, a really powerful argument for why a voice to parliament is really just around uh, delivering equity and justice and, and sort of moving us uh, along the path of reconciliation so I know that's um, yeah, it's, it's obviously it's going to be a big political um, conversation in the next 12 months we've got a government who's committed to run a referendum before the end of the next calendar year so there's going to be a lot more conversation about this in the months to come and uh, anyway it's just a really moving speech I encourage everyone to go have a look at that, I've watched it a few times
0: Fantastic, that sounds really good, I've heard such great things about it and uh, your uh, recommendation is a reminder to, to queue it up um, listen to it over the over the next few days. So thank you for that.
1: Do it. Do it now.
0: That's it. Uh link in the show notes. Tenant, what have you got?
2: So I have been I've been on a bit of a cyberpunk kick uh recently after uh playing uh the uh, several years worth of patches later version of the video game Cyberpunk 2077 and that sent me to the text of the cyberpunk genre rereading Neuromancer by William Gibson, published 1983. Mm. This is where The Matrix comes from. Uh, This is where a lot of ideas and tropes associated with the high-tech and low-life genre of cyberpunk were crystallised. And I can report that uh, nearly 40 years later, uh, it's still a cracker of a book. Uh, it's it's very compelling and exciting mm. and well-written, uh, despite William Gibson not being a technologically knowledgeable person at that time, uh, as famously evidenced by his far-future, uh, high-tech uh, criminal operator character having a whole... 30 megabytes of uh, <laughs> stolen random access memory to move to his buyers at one point in the novel. Uh, but th- this read through, it had some added resonance for me because of my uh, reading some months back of uh, the build great big uh, giant space habitats book Uh, that uh, the high frontier that was uh, big in the 70s. Uh, And Neuromancer has this weird combination of techno-optimism and techno-pessimism uh, he's, Gibson is taking uh, a significant chunk of the action takes place in one of these enormous space colonies that Gerard O'Neill was writing about in the 70s. It's turned out to be economical and indeed highly profitable to uh, build massive habitats with lunar concrete. Uh, But they are a place where crime and corruption and uh, the turning inward of human potential into atrociousness happens rather than the optimistic flowering in O'Neill's work. So Neuromancer, worth a go. And uh, I now hear that Apple TV Plus is going to have a series of it uh, filming next year. So... More people can be introduced to a blank slate protagonist case and compelling inset mirror shades surgically implanted over her eye sockets, Razor Girl Street Samurai Molly Millions, who is a much more compelling figure.
0: There must be some massive... Sci-fi nerd over at Apple TV. Um, between this and uh, Foundation, and I hope
2: they do a better <laughs> job than Foundation. Foundation kept threatening to become interesting and uh, never quite managed
0: it. It wasn't. It wasn't that great. But there's clearly someone who's like, "This is unfilmable." Finally, I have my chance in this age of streaming. Of billions and billions of dollars <laughs> shovelled in my general direction. <laughs> Uh, Some of them will come off. Um, That sounds very promising. Uh, And I should say uh, I caught up with um, one of your previous one more things, Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, I second your endorsement. That was fantastic. Yeah. I won't say anything else, but you should all watch it. Um, So we've had an audio recommendation, we've had a book recommendation. I'm going to uh, round out uh, these summer holiday recommendations uh, with a a movie. Um, I'm going to recommend uh, Glass Onion, uh, Ryan Johnson's sequel to 2019's Knives Out, a movie I absolutely loved. Um, I can't get enough of Daniel Craig's uh, Southern PI, uh, Benoit Blanc. The entire rest of the cast is different. It's very Agatha Christie, which was kind of implicit in the premise of *Knives Out*. But they now take, you know, the your beloved detective is uh, on a new case. Um, I think it kind of works to not know anything about the movie going in. Um, so I will say nothing other than that it is a completely different milieu, but is similar in its skewering of um, people that have a lot of money and a lot of power and uh, are far too pleased. With themselves, so it has that in common with its predecessor, but um, is otherwise completely different. Uh, I am a little bit sad as a as a massive Last Jedi fan that Ryan Johnson doesn't seem to be getting to his Star Wars trilogy anytime soon. But in the absence <laughs> of that, maybe that seems to be off in the long grass somewhere. If he can keep making uh, Benoît Blanc films, I that'll that'll keep me happy in the meantime
1: second that i watched knives out like three or four days ago it was really good i missed nah. that and then i'm halfway through glass onion it is no reflection on uh, how good the movie is but i fell asleep <laughs> the other night at the halfway mark i'm tired and uh you have a tiny human i have a tiny it's human.
0: fair enough frankie
1: So we started with great ambition at about 9 p.m. (laughs) I think come 10 p.m. I was gone. But I'm pleased to report that's what my plans are after we finish wrapping this pod.
0: Well, if you're halfway through that movie, I can report the second half is outstanding. (laughs) It all comes together. I won't say anything more. Um, All right. Well, uh, I think that uh, wraps up. uh, Let me sum up for... 2022 any any parting thoughts for our summer operas team
2: i'm just excited at all the reports (laughs) we're gonna read next year (laughs) and uh i uh, i look forward to going through them all with you two and uh bringing our dear listeners along with us for the next stage of the unstoppable freight train that is the let me
0: sum up podcast Juggernaut Juggernaut
1: yeah and I just want to yeah echo that but also thank you too like it's been such a fun little adventure this last year doing this with you and and to our listeners there's a few of you now so thanks for tuning in every fortnight for the last little while I think we've had a lot of fun making this podcast and really hope you're enjoying it
2: and if you are enjoying it don't forget to like
0: subscribe rate and review it really helps that is the gift you can give us this holiday season (laughs) well um yes uh freight train juggernaut um uh, notwithstanding that um we do need a little break so we're going to take january off but we'll be back Better than ever, uh, fresh and ready to take on the latest reports um, in your feeds in February. So we uh, we look forward to that. But until then, uh, we're all on Twitter. Frankie is at
1: Frankie Muskovic.
0: Tenant is at Tenant Reed. And my handle is at Luke Menzel. Uh, if you have any thoughts on on papers that we should be reviewing uh, in those February episodes, you can send them to mailbag at letmesumup.net. You should, of course, be subscribing to Let Me Sum Up in your favourite podcast app. If this is your first episode, uh, apologies. It is in no way representative of the standard episodes. You may have picked up along the way that we usually talk about reports. Um, That is the the vast majority of content that uh, appears in this Feed. If you want to uh, appraise yourself of that, you'll find the full back catalogue of episodes at letmesumup.net. But for uh, Frankie Muscovich and Tenant Reed, I'm Luke Menzel for the last time in 2022. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.
1: That's a wrap, Yay. yeah.
0: If it had been
2: Silent Green, oh, we would still be going <laughs> on the more <Microsoft. laughs> I'd be just getting around to talking about the book.
1: What do you reckon the nominees for 2023 climate movie will be? A, Soylent Green. B, Soylent Soylent Green. green. (laughs) C, Soylent Green.
2: I think there's a lot of wisdom in the campaign slogan of Elaine Marley for governor of Malay Island in The Secret of Monkey Island when there's only one candidate. There's only one choice.